today's reading is from Acts 5, 12 through 21. Now many signs and wonders were done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers are added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick in the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of Sadducee, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Andrew Jones. I'm the campus pastor here, if I don't know you. Uh, I'm kind of in this stage with my kids where we're starting to talk about um, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's just kind of fun. It's a fun stage. And it got me thinking this week as we got ready for this message, you know, what, what was it that I wanted to be when I was growing up? When was the last time you thought about that? What kind of life did you want when you were like in early elementary school, what if, if I'd asked you that? So every, when I was young, everyone called me um, Jones or Jonesy for some, because Andrew was too boring. I don't know. So everybody called me that. And so like naturally, I wanted to be Indiana Jones when I grew up. That was my first great love. <laughs> so I didn't know if they were going to do that again. So here's this... So here's a story behind that real quick. Since, since that, you know, I send my sermon out to some staff people and some volunteers before Sunday so we can all get ready. And uh, the snarky comments that people leave on that, I can't begin to tell you. Uh, some, every now and then they'll say something helpful, but mostly it's just... And so I think over the, in that document, you, you guys pranked me with that. So thank you. Um, okay, so I want to be <clears throat> Indiana Jones. Uh, until I realized that like, actually being an archaeologist is one of the most right, like, boring jobs you could ever possibly have. And if you're an archaeologist, I apologize. I'm sorry for saying that. But it has nothing to do with being Indiana Jones. And so I didn't want to do I moved on. So then, I, you know, I don't know. It was like I wanted to be a rock star, and then I probably wanted to be a millionaire. And then, you know, as I got older, it was kind of like your expectations change. And it's like I really just kind of want a job that I like that pays the bills. You know, that's... So what, what about you? What did you want out of life? And as, as we age, as we, you know, our, our answers to that question change, obviously, but um, if you think about it, we, we, no matter how old we are, we still tend to gravitate to certain things when we think about that question. What do you want out of life? We gravitate to things like uh, success. It's like, I want to be successful. I don't have to be world famous but I'd love to be well-known in my industry or in my field or in my community, right? I want, to, I want a legacy there. We tend to gravitate to things like uh, comfort. I want a life of relative ease. I, want, I, not, I don't want to be stressed out all the time. I want to be healthy. 
uh, and have, you know, we tend to gravitate to, to safety and security. I want to feel safe. Um, and, and these are not bad things to want uh, in your life. They're not. Uh, but, but the Bible, and, and sometimes annoyingly so, the Bible will, will continue to remind you over and over and over again that if that's all that you want from life is one of those things, or all of them, if that's all that you want, if that's all that you strive for, you, you will be missing out on a profound gift from God and His design for your life. You see that all the time. And you see it here in the text we just, we just read, that David read for us. We're, we're offered uh, not more of our lives, not more of what we want out of life, but, you, but this life. I don't know if you caught that. At the end of the scripture reading this morning, the apostles are told, go and tell everyone about this life that you now have. And I don't want to give away too much here at the front, but you know, if you were paying attention, the apostles were in jail when this happened, and they're freed by an angel, and they're told, go tell everybody in the temple courts, everybody in the city of Jerusalem, everybody in the whole region about this life. Go interrupt their pursuit of their version of life. Go interrupt their hopes and dreams, their anxieties and fears, their goals and aspirations. Go interrupt them in the middle of whatever they think life is about and tell them about this life. Go invite them to be part of something big, something meaningful, something true, something new God is doing. So what about us? Do, do we want to hear about this life? Do we want to hear about this new thing? Are we, are we content? We're good. This story today is about this life, this life offered in Jesus. And it's not, I'm going to be honest with you, it's not an easy life. It's not. You'll hear that in the story today. It's, it's probably not the life we would choose for ourselves if we were 10 years old. It's not even the life I think the apostles would have chosen for themselves if you asked them a few chapters ago. But now, they want everyone to know. They want everyone to know, and I want us to know. So if you brought your Bible, uh, turn to Acts chapter 5. We're going we're gonna to be there this morning, and we'll, we're going to start in verse 12. We're going to see just three things about this life that this story teaches us that, that I, I want us to spend our time on. So for those of you maybe who are new or you haven't been with us uh, in this series, basically since January we've been in the book of Acts, which is uh, the history of the early Christian movement, the early Christian church. Uh, and if you, uh, <clears throat> we've kind of um, covered a lot. They have been through a lot. It's only, we're only five chapters in. And we've seen them go through so much. They've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was Acts 2. And they're speaking in languages, human languages that other people can understand that they didn't know. We've, we've seen the early church uh, hear their first sermon from the Apostle Peter, have their first healing, their first public healing, miraculous healing. Uh, we've even seen their, the first hints of, of, of persecution. They were arrested uh, earlier on. We've seen all of this stuff. But as we come to chapter 5, this is all set up, we, we, we're starting to see something change. You know, for most of the books so far in, in Acts, the church is, is if, in, in a sense, kind of hanging on by a very thin thread. So, you know, sure, they're adding to their number daily, that's true, and they're, they're, they're in the thousands now, but as far as the broader world is concerned, the powers that be, okay, this is, this is a flash in the pan, this is a fly in the ointment, this, this is a nuisance, this Jesus thing, okay, no one thinks this whole Jesus is alive thing is going to amount to anything. It's, it's whatever. But here in chapter 5, just, just look at this. So, so verse 12. 
Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. You can feel a momentum building. A chapter ago, they had healed one guy in the temple. One guy. And now in chapter 5, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is telling us they were doing this daily, every day, healing people. And no one could explain how. And they're adding to their number every day. And even, even Peter's shadow is famous now. <laughs> you picked up on that. It's like Beyonce-level famous. I wrote that in my manuscript. Speaking of snarky comments, and someone wrote, I don't think you're young enough to say this anymore. <laughs> it was hurtful. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and no, I want you to notice this too. People, people from outside Jerusalem, okay, not, not just in the city, but outside in the region are coming, they're coming from the suburbs into town to receive healing and to be ministered to by the apostles. That's the kind of uh, traction this movement is gaining. And at the same time, you see this momentum building, you see also fear building. Look back at verse 13. None of the rest dared to join them. This is the first hint of fear that Luke has given us, really, in the book of Acts. People outside the movement are taking notice. And they realize, man, this, this thing is not just a nuisance. This is more than just a crowd. This is a threat. And I'm, and I'm going to steer clear. I'm not going to be a part of this. And they're not wrong. It says that they're every day, that, this, that the early church is every day at Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch, which is right in the heart of the temple. And you can, you can see it here. I just wanted to show you this. So this would be full of, this is kind of a, a, a mock of what the, the first century Herodian temple would have looked like. And uh, this would be full of thousands of people. And you see these, the, the columns all around, That's, that was known as Solomon's porch. And they gathered there daily, preaching the word and healing people. And I want you to see this because sometimes it's hard for us to realize how in your face a move like that would be for this early church. You know, the temple, it was a wonder of the ancient world. It, it was one of the most beautiful pieces of architecture the world had ever known. In the Roman Empire, absolutely. It, this, this was a premier holy place, especially for the, for the Jewish people who were then scattered all over the known world, would bring people to worship. And, and, and very important, powerful, influential people made their living on the grandeur and the preeminence of that temple. It was everything. People like the Sadducees, which you heard uh, reference. We'll get to them in a minute. And here you have these backwater nobodies, these apostles from Galilee, opening up shop on their turf. I'm trying to think, what, what would this, this, this would be like a ragtag blues band opening up in front of the ticket line at the Kaufman Center. I mean, it's like, they're just hawking people off of this line. And imagine if you ran the, the ticket counter at the Kaufman Center and people stopped buying tickets 
just to go listen to this little group of people, right? These, no, these nobody no names. How would you feel about that? Everybody knew that they were asking for trouble. This, and, and the crazy thing is, they, they, if you think about it, they did not have to be this public. They could have just kept meeting in homes, right, privately. They, they were already warned in chapter 4 to be quiet and go away. And here they are, ignoring the temple and the Jewish leadership and throwing it right back in their face. So it's really not surprising when you get to verse 17 that the high priest and his religious lackeys, they get mad. They're angry. They're, uh, Luke says they're jealous. They're jealous of this attention going to these guys and not to them. But, but this time, instead of just arresting Peter and John, which they've already done, they round up the whole leadership. They get all the apostles. They want everybody in jail to pull out the big guns. So, so they put them in the public jail overnight to let them sweat it out. Like, hey, we're, we're not going to talk today. We'll talk to you tomorrow. You stay there overnight. And, uh, you know, the, as, as brave as these guys have been so far, these apostles, they have to be thinking in this moment. They have to know. These are the people that killed Jesus. And they're probably going to kill us too. We're probably going to die tomorrow. And kind of in the midst of that, almost out of nowhere, Luke says in verse 19, an angel just shows up. <laughs> and uh, after everything we've seen God do in the book of Acts, we, we, we really can't be too shocked. And this angel unlocks the door and he tells them what to do next. Look at verse 20. Here's, here's what the angel says. He says, phew, that was close. You guys really ought to lay low for a while and let this blow over. No. He says, go back to the temple right now and speak to everyone the words of this life. Go back to the temple. This is like breaking out of jail to go wait in the police waiting room, right? It's like this. They go back there and it's like, hey, look, we got out. Look, hey. But there, there they are. Luke says, at daybreak, preaching about Jesus again. And here's my favorite part. Okay, the high priest who no doubt went to sleep that night, relishing the fact that he was going to get to throw his weight around with these guys in the morning. He knows they've been, they've been thinking about this all night long, knowing that he could kill them like that, and no questions asked. He's done this before. He's like, they are going to, they are going to fold like cheap lawn chairs in front of me. He hasn't been this excited since Passover. He is pumped about this. This is going to be a good day. And he wants it to stick so he, uh, he gets the whole council to show up at this uh, interrogation. You know how if you um, turn on C-SPAN and only like half of Congress is ever actually there? It's, it's like the council was like that too. So he makes sure everybody is showing up today. Everyone will be there for this. So he gets everybody there and he sits in his place of honor in front. And he says, okay, is everybody ready? We're all ready. Go get the prisoners and bring them in. Right? He's arranged everything to be as intimidating as possible. He wants them to know the entire leadership is against them. He says, go get the prisoners. And he sits down and he waits. And he waits. And he looks at his sundial or whatever he does. <laughs> and he waits. And suddenly, you know, this is just my imagination, right? But the guards come back and they won't look at they won't make eye contact, they're kind of shuffling, and it's like, well, and he goes, what's the problem? Where have you been? Where, where are the prisoners? And I love this response. It's like the guards are like, well, 
There's good news and there's bad news. The good news is the doors were locked. So we don't need to fix the doors. <laughs> the bad news is the guys you arrested are gone, and we have no idea how they got out, and we have no idea where they are now. And it's like the high priest is like, well, that's a problem. And then I love the way Luke tells us, just some random guy, we don't know who it is, some random guy says, oh yeah, I saw those guys. <laughs> They're at the temple preaching about Jesus again. Isn't that, isn't that crazy, right? How'd they do that? And the high priest is like, go get them and bring them here. And the captain of the guard goes to find them. Uh, but he can't even arrest them. Luke says he, they can't go by force. There are too many people around. And the people love these, these apostles. <laughs> and he knows this is, a, this is a riot waiting to happen. So he, he has to go to the prisoners, who are now free, and say, listen, the high priest would like to speak to you. If it's all right with you, would you, would you please come with me? And if, if I, I love that. <laughs> if I were the apostles, I, I would have been so tempted to say, try it. Try it. Go for it. I dare you to arrest me right now. These, there, there's hundreds of people here. They, they love us. You won't get 10 steps before someone throws a rock at you, and there aren't enough of you. So go ahead, try it, go ahead. I, but they don't do that. They willingly go back to the high priest. And when I read that, I'm, when you really think about that, that's astonishing. And you know, one of the first things you see here about this life they proclaim, if you've been in this series, you have seen the life they have is full of power, incredible power. They've healed hundreds of people. They've seen thousands turn to Jesus when they really shouldn't, when every sociological dynamic is working against them. They've watched God's power pour out on them in the Holy Spirit. And this is just the stuff Luke wrote down, okay? More than that has happened, I promise you. There's incredible power in this life, but right here at the same time and always we see this life invites suffering. And I use that word intentionally. It doesn't, this life doesn't seek it out, doesn't relish in it, but it invites it, come what may. And you just can't miss it here. You see this over and over again in the story. When the apostles are rescued by the angel, you'd think it would be to get away from suffering. But the angel doesn't send them to safety. He sends them back into danger, perhaps even greater danger than before. And then when they're surrounded by the temple leaders, they, they, they know what's going to happen. They know that the absolute safest place for them after they've escaped is with the crowd. The crowd is their friend. To go behind closed doors with these temple leaders, they could, be they could be disappeared. They could never be seen or heard from again. And nobody would know what happened to them. Who knows what suffering awaits them there, and yet they go. And Christians have followed this pattern ever since. It looks, it looks different, but it's the same pattern. I, you know, uh, Elam is a ministry we partner with. that They do church planting in Iran. And I remember the story of a young woman who was arrested in her house church for being a Christian, because that's illegal. You can be a Christian in Iran if you're a foreigner, but you can't convert to Christianity. That's illegal. 
And she spent years in Evan Prison, which is this notorious prison in Iran. And she suffered, I mean, she was put in solitary confinement and she was mistreated. I mean, I, I don't want to glorify this. This was truly awful for her. It was. And yet, you know, I never forget this. She started a prayer group in prison with, with other women, Muslim women, and they were coming to know the Lord through her witness. And when she was released, um, the guard that released her, she protested. She said, I can't leave yet. The ministry here is thriving. I can't leave these people. Now, they forced her to leave anyway, but can you, can you, if you were the guard that day, what do you say to that? You're like, what kind of life is that? I've never seen that before. And it's not always being thrown in prison. You know, there's a, there's a guy here at, in this congregation. He's a physicist. He was telling uh, one, uh, one of the pastors on staff that he was asked by a colleague if he believed in miracles. Now, he's in the hard sciences, so he, know, he knows where that question's going. And he responded, you know, yeah, I do. I do believe in miracles. He, this guy, I think, knew he was a Christian. So he was, you know, he was, he was baiting him. And the guy basically said, how, you know, how can you believe in that and be a scientist? He was mocked for it. He lost credibility for that, but he did it willingly, knowing full well what happened when he responded that way. See, this life, alongside of forgiveness and grace and power, it also leads to suffering for Jesus' name. And so today, in the midst of our journeys for comfort or accolade or success or safety or whatever it is, do we know that Jesus' offer will take us to suffering at times? Do we know that you cannot say yes to Jesus' resurrection and victory if you do not say yes to his cross and his suffering? The apostles understood that. Jesus had taught them. He prepared them. Are we prepared? Okay, but here, here's, the, here's the good news. All right, so yes, this, this, this can lead to suffering, this life. But this life cannot be defeated by it either. So, so look at the rest of the story. So the apostles get brought back to the council. That's verse 27. And the, and the high priest says, why are you disobeying us and preaching again? Now, I love that he never asks how they got out of jail. It's like he, does, <laughs> it's like he, doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to know. <laughs> he says, why are you disobeying us again? We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. He will not say Jesus' name the whole time. Yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter notices he won't say his name, so Peter will. Here's how he, here's how he responds. We must obey God rather than men, like you. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Here is what Peter is saying. He says, we cannot stop and we won't. So do what you have to do. And now, for the first time, that council is enraged. And they're ready to wipe these guys off the face of the earth. No matter, they don't even care anymore what, what the fallout is going to be. They're not thinking like politicians anymore. They are angry because they, have, they see now a resolve that cannot be reasoned with or threatened. 
It can only be snuffed out. It can only be stopped. And he's about to make the order to kill these guys when a guy named Gamaliel speaks up. And maybe you've heard that name before. He's kind of a famous guy. We actually know about him from extra-biblical sources. So sources, you know, not just the Bible at this time. He's a pretty famous guy. He's a pretty smart guy. Jewish scholar. And he says, time out. Wait. He says, guards, take the prisoners out for just a second. Okay, we're going to have a closed session here. And he gives, he gives some counsel. He gives some advice. This is verse 35. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. He says, let this play out before we do anything rash. And he says, here, he says, remember, I want you to remember two examples. He says, do you guys remember a guy named Theodos? And maybe some people nodded, but I, my, my hunch is half the room kind of thought, oh, maybe. He's like, you know, he claimed to be somebody. He got 400 people to follow him, but he got killed, and then he was completely forgotten. Okay, his movement came to nothing. He says, do you guys remember Judas the Galilean? And again, it's kind of like, ah, it sounds familiar. Same thing. You kill the leader, the revolution dies. He says, now Jesus is dead. So let this thing just wait it out. If this movement is of man, and purely of man, it will fail. If it's of God, not even persecution, nothing you throw at this will be able to overthrow it. He says, either way, you are wasting your time. And man, did that theory get put to the test. (laughs) For 300 years, the first 300 years of Christianity in the Roman Empire, Nero, Domitian, Marcus Aurelius, Decius, Diocletian, Christians were slaughtered. There were several systemic empire-wide persecutions of Christians, and yet the church grew, and it grew, and it grew. Today, even today, there are an estimated 215 million Christians who live in places where their faith is illegal, it's forbidden, and it's punished. Okay, I just want to give you a sense. These are the 50 countries where it is most dangerous to follow Jesus, yellow being the mildest, orange being the extreme. Okay, 215 million people. And there is suffering and persecution going on for proclaiming this life that I cannot even imagine, but the church is still here. This life cannot be stopped by suffering. Death and the threat of death and beatings and jail, if it's, if it's all purely human, it'll be over and done with, says Gamaliel. But if it's of God, if it's of God, and here we are, 2,000 years later, 6,500 miles away, kicking, still kicking all over the world. I think we passed the test. But why? Why do people do this? Why, why do people continue to risk their lives and endure things for this life? It's because it, it's the one life that cannot be stopped by suffering. And here's what I mean by that. Listen, Every, everything we want out of life, even if you can't articulate it out loud, whatever it is, our vision, our preferred future, whatever you want to call it, it is immediately defeated by suffering. Think about it. If you, well, you climb that corporate ladder, you get the job and the salary, and, but then one day you get sick or the company gets bought or you get a bad boss or you make a bad decision and then it's over. It's over. 
right? Hardship comes in, opposition comes in, suffering comes in, and it's taken away. It's gone. Or you make, you know, you make it to retirement, and you can finally live the life you were saving for and planning for and hoping for for so many years, but your body begins to fail. And all the trips and the fun and the rest and the, and the, the visiting family, everything you were hoping for vanishes before your eyes. Suffering. Or you finally find that person, right? You think, this is the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. This is what I've been longing for. And you get married, and you realize that person is just as big a mess as you are. And all the loneliness and the fear and the anxiety, it all comes flooding back. Or you work so hard to get the perfect family with the perfect kids, and then you realize you can't control them. And they start doing things you don't want them to do. And that vision, that thing, that picture in your mind, it's gone. And even if you're one of those people in this room, and maybe there's one of you who avoids every major problem in life, you've never been jobless, you've never lost a loved one or a spouse, You've always had enough money and you've always had food on the table. Eventually, even for you, death will take all of that away. Okay, here's my point is, our lives, the lives we are so, and me too, so preoccupied with protecting and preserving and maintaining and pursuing, it cannot survive suffering. It immediately loses to it. They're, they're, they're so fragile. But this life, this life that Jesus offers from an empty tomb, this life that defeats death, an eternity with God and His good world, okay, suffering cannot touch that. Why are people exchanging their lives for this life? That's why. It's the only life that suffering cannot defeat. And that power, that same power, it, it changes the world. Okay, this is our, this is our last point. Look, look at verse 40. So the high priest takes Gamaliel's advice. Fine. We won't kill them today. And he warns the apostles one more time. Stop teaching about Jesus. And he lets them go, but not before flogging them. If you know what that is, it's excruciating uh, whipping. I mean, it's... It, it was illegal to do it 40 times because it said that would kill a man, so they did it 39. 39 times is probably what each one of them got. 39 enormous uh, lacerations on their backs, permanent damage to your body when this was done to you. And so the, the, the apostles, they left. They're, they left dejected, defeated, depressed, exhausted. No. Look at verse 41. And I still can't get over this. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Right? This life, despite everything we've just seen, it leads to joy. Real, lasting joy. I'm not talking about happiness. I'm not talking about momentary pleasure. I'm talking about relief. Enduring, circumstanceless joy. This is what this life promises, and it's what no other life can deliver. And this joy is so powerful. You know what really uh, 
toppled the Roman Empire as it was known at this time. You know what really did that? One of the most powerful governments, infrastructures, armies the world had ever known up to this time. You know what? It was not a new religion. There were lots of religions in the Roman Empire, thousands of religions, and nobody cared. You bow and knee to Caesar, do whatever you want, don't care. It wasn't power, okay? The Christians had no political power at all at this time. In fact, because they were new, they're a new spirituality, they were looked down upon. It's only kind of this modern, <laughs> you know, we're, as modern Westerners, we love new stuff that's very different from most of the world and for most of history. For most of history, you want something old, something that stood the test of time. So, the, I mean, the Roman Empire looked at this thing and said, get out of here. You're amateurs. And you know, you know what? It wasn't even persecution and suffering. You know, the Roman Empire killed lots of people for lots of reasons and in lots of different ways. It wasn't that Christians were crucified along the road on the way to Rome for everybody to see. It wasn't just that Christians died in the hundreds and thousands they did. It's, it's that while they died, they sang. That's what changed an empire. I've got the joy, joy, joy. That undid the world. They worshiped, they prayed. They asked for forgiveness for the people killing them. You see, the minute the council in Acts 5, the minute they see those 12 men leave rejoicing, they had to know in that moment, it is over. There's nothing we can do to stop that. Because these guys, you know, they know something. They know something that can't be taken away. They know something we cannot threaten out of them. We can't beat it out of them. Something they cannot deny. These guys had seen Jesus die. And then they watched him walk out of the grave. And you know, Luke, he he puts it this way. When when the disciples begin to realize, this is in the book of of the Gospel of Luke, also written by Luke. When they realize that the resurrection is true, Luke says the apostles, they, they almost didn't believe it because of amazement, yes, but because of joy. It was too good to be true, come true. This life is now theirs, and, and it's joy. And you know what? The Romans had no answer for that. And the Jewish leadership had no answer for that. And the Iranian government has no answer for that. And Al-Shabaab in Kenya has no answer for that. And God willing, this friend of the person who goes here, he has no answer for that because this changes people. This changes the world. And you, you know what I cannot even imagine right now? I don't know about you guys. This is, this, is, this is a very difficult time in so many ways to be alive. I don't know if you feel that. I do. Ima- I can't imagine the suffering, the confusion, the depression, the anxiety and the violence and the terrorism and the shootings and the racism and the prejudice and the hatred and the division of this world. In the midst of all of that ugliness, what if we in this room were known for joy? What would that do? I don't even know. I can't imagine. But I really, really want to. How about you? 
Are we ready for this life to choose it? Let's pray. Father, I hardly even, hardly even know what to say other than in the midst of our pursuit of, of whatever, in the midst of what we're afraid of tomorrow, what awaits us there. God, by your Holy Spirit and your power, make us people who choose joy. Amen.